how to share everything from boring breakfasts to the most memorable moments of our lives. That's changing what we can do, and it's changing the shape of the city of the future. Today, I'm Mark Pesci. The coming next billion seconds are the most important in human history as technology transforms the way we live and work. On this series, we talk to some of the brightest minds shaping our world, charting our path as we voyage into an incredible future. A lot of that future will take place right outside our front doors in cities and towns both here in Australia and around the world. We'll be talking to Sharing Cities expert Darren Sharp about how his work is transforming the way we live, where we live. The human story of sharing on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds. A little story from my own life. Now, I appear regularly on the project on Channel 10. It's always a lot of fun. They're a great crew to work with. Because it's a daily current affairs show, I don't ever get a lot of notice before being informed that I have to be there. I get a phone call and I'm asked to come down into the studio. Now, generally, I have plenty of time to get ready and pop over to their studio in Paramount, but sometimes there's no time at all. A last-minute change, maybe a guest cancels. I'm on the spot. I have to be over there in a few minutes. Now, that's a problem for me because in the 14 years that I've lived in Australia, I've never owned a car. I have to book a taxi to come over to the studio. That's fine when it's not raining and there are taxis available. But on one particular day, I got the call and I had to be in studio in 15 minutes. So there wasn't even time to wait for a taxi. What could I do? Well, I walked out my front door, walked up to a car, parked on the street, tapped a plastic card against the windscreen, and the doors unlocked. I got in, put my seatbelt on, put a key into the ignition, and I drove off. And I made it to the studio with time to spare. Now, in Sydney, that sort of thing happens all the time. All the suburbs are dotted with parking spots designated for car sharing. Car sharing is a bit like car rental, but on a short-term basis. And it's really meant for people living in a neighborhood who don't own a car and only occasionally need to use one, folks just like me. The idea is that residents of a neighborhood give up a few parking spots on the street, they're dedicated to car sharing, and then everyone in the neighborhood gets to use those vehicles. It's a trade-off that means there's less traffic in the neighborhood, less noise, but just as much capacity to drive anywhere at the drop of a hat. Our guest on this episode of The Next Billion Seconds, Darren Sharp, helps cities make the most of what they share, And he'll help us understand how car sharing is really just the tip of a much bigger iceberg. Darren, welcome to the next billion seconds. Thank you. So car sharing is a relatively new thing, right? It is. It's probably been around for about 10, 15 years or so. And the idea is that it really started in urban centers where people didn't have cars or there just wasn't enough parking. So it was really dealing with a real problem around getting getting transport to people who needed it. It is about that. It's also about, I guess, addressing some of the congestion nightmares that we see in big cities around the world where people, you know, driving their cars in to work and having to use so much city real estate to park in massive car parks, which is pretty poor use of of space, which is very expensive real estate in city centres. And it's also really getting to 
the environmental concerns that some people have around how can we reduce carbon emissions, um, greenhouse gas emissions and so on, and live more sustainably. And some of this is also around, the, there's a bigger trend that's going on that people are coming back to leave in the middle of cities, right? In the 60s, 70s and 80s, people really fanned out to the suburbs. Carlin, they all had cars. And now that move is, is really retracting. And now we're seeing that cities are in fact the most vital, the most well-connected places. And we can't have all of the kit in cities that we have out in the suburbs. We have the big house and you have the shed in the backyard and you have a big garage and you have a big driveway and you maybe you have a pool, you, you just can't have any of that. No, that's right. So when there's, a, I guess, less space available, you know, then things like car sharing become really attractive. And it also speaks to lifestyle concerns that a lot of millennials have at the moment as well around this idea of access over ownership. So people are not so concerned about having ownership of a car. They'd much rather use it on a fractional basis, on an as-needs basis, uh, rather than having to take care of all the insurance and the overhead and everything else, repair and so on. All right, so let's let's really sort of dig in right there. You talk about this idea of access over ownership and that we have this idea that it's now possible when people are living close enough together, and this could work in a suburb too, but it generally works really well inside of a city. When people are living close enough together, they can start to have a different sense of the way they use resources and the way they share resources? Exactly. Uh, and that's because cities, you know, generally bring people together and create um, what people in urban studies call agglomeration benefits, you know. So you're able to pull a whole bunch of people and assets and resources together. Uh, and that's what um, some of the bigger platforms, you know, have been able to leverage to create new business models uh, out of, you know, accessing those assets. So GoGet can buy a whole bunch of cars and do that. Uber can get a whole bunch of people to drive for them. Airbnb can get a whole bunch of people to rent space in their homes. This is what you mean when you, you mean a platform? Exactly. So, you know, we're familiar with um, some of the platforms that we've seen uh, over the last few years, like eBay and Amazon and others. That's now moving into um, the sharing space. We talk about the platform economy and we talk about you know, Uber, when we talk about uh, Airbnb, when we talk about Airtasker and so on, they are really, you know, emerging platforms where uh, people are able to undertake a whole different range of tasks, able to, you know, get access to services, peer-to-peer -peer marketplaces and so on, uh, and get access to various assets, talk about it in terms of stuff, space and skills that they don't necessarily have to own. Stuff, space and skills. All right, so let's start with that. I, I live in Sydney. Do I know what stuff, what space, and what skills I might have access to? Uh, well, generally in most cities, not necessarily. So part of the work that I do uh, is with uh, an organisation called Shareable, and I'm part of the Sharing Cities Network, and we run uh, a lot of asset mapping uh, workshops and festivals and so on. So asset mapping is around the stuff. Yeah, exactly. But it can also be about the the space and the skills too. So, uh, you know, a good example is uh, in my neck of the woods in Melbourne, I've worked with the city of Yarra, for example, to uh, map their sharing economy to get a sense of, you know, what are the community gardens that are out there, the co-working spaces, the car sharing pods, the tool libraries, and so on and so forth. And what's a tool library? A tool library, if you think of a book library, so a tool library is where you'd go and, um, you know, hire out a, a lawnmower or a drill. Okay, or, but the, you see, the, the librarian's going to be very upset because the lawnmower is quite loud and I'm obviously making a lot of noise in the tool library. Exactly. <laughs> 
But um, the idea of libraries is really changing, uh, you know, at the moment. And there's all sorts of library of things that are emerging uh, in, you know, public libraries around the world uh, where you can get access to, you know, things that will um, check the thermal energy of your house and whether it's draft proof or not and a whole range of power tools and other things. So something that you might only need once or maybe once a year. Yeah, why would you want to buy something like that, which right. might be quite a big outlay of And yet it's a cost. really good idea for you to have access to one because it helps you save money, it helps your home be efficient, it helps also save energy, which is also just good. So there's these things that are, I guess, they're really good if they're available, but then they don't make sense to own. Exactly. So, you know, there's that... Um, quote which has been bandied about quite a lot around how we only use a drill for about eight minutes of its life and so on um, <laughs> right. and there's a whole bunch of different uh you know stuff that we don't really use day to day but which we use occasionally which it would be great if we could uh, have access to through these kinds of services which we are starting to have now okay so we have stuff we have spaces we have skills do we map each of those separately? I mean, how do we map skills versus spaces and stuff? Sure. I, I don't think um, there's necessarily uh, – it doesn't have to be a very strong line between them all. If mm. you think about uh, the whole urban agriculture movement, which is just massive around the world, we have hundreds of community gardens in Australia now. So, so this is taking essentially a, a vacant lot somewhere and then using it to plant or even people planting on a little square that they have in the yard because now they know they can. Exactly. And so this is an example where stuff, space and skills come together right. and converge in the one sort of project. So when we're you know uh, bringing the community together to run a map jam, uh, and actually, so a map jam is basically a get together where everyone comes and says, "Oh, I know about this. Let's put it on the map." Oh, I know about that. Exactly. So we'll bring in the community groups, we'll bring in startups, we'll bring in local government together, and we'll start to say what are the sharing services that exist in our backyard, mm -hmm. and then create like a digital online map of them. Uh, and there are now hundreds of these, thousands of these around the world. At Shareable, we host dozens of them. This is like the stone soup story that we all heard when we were kids, right? That, that these folks show up, these soldiers show up in town and no one wants to give them any food and they get the pot, they throw some water in and some stones and eventually they manage to talk everyone into the town into throwing what they have into the pot so that everyone can share this amazing stone soup at the end. I mean, that's essentially what we're now doing, but at a citywide level. Yeah, exactly. We're starting to. So with the uh, urban agriculture example, there's a group in Melbourne called 3000 Acres, which is modeled off another group in New York called 596 Acres. And they... Uh, Do they just pull these numbers out of the air? <laughs> no, no, they don't. But, but basically they, they work to, um, uh, with, with government, with various agencies and so on, to identify uh, vacant blocks of land or underutilized land, mm -hmm. uh, then bring the community together to, you know, buy planter boxes and fertilizer and seeds and whatever else. So they're using the space, they're unlocking vacant space, they're using stuff, could be, you know, like equipment and tools and so on, and they're using more importantly skills to bring the community together and they're actually strengthening those neighborly and social connections. Right, because you're going to meet people while you're gardening. And, exactly. And, you know, and you're maybe going to harvest and you're maybe going to make a salad out of what you've done and you're going to share that around. Exactly. So it's, it's really... You know, yes, it's skills, yes, it's space, yes, it's stuff, but it's also sharing relationships. Absolutely. And I think that's um, a real yearning in communities at the moment. They want to relate to each other. They want to have thicker uh, social connections with their neighbours and so on to overcome some of the, you know, 
alienation and isolation that we've seen in, in levels of depression in cities around the world. Where yeah. Everyone's tapping away on their smartphones, but they don't talk to their neighbours. This reminds me that a few years ago on the nature strip next to the roads around my house in Sydney, someone actually went and planted, for instance, there's a little lime tree that's been planted. There were some other little fruits that were planted and they had little signs on them. This is what this is. You can come and eat them. I don't know if anyone has actually done that. In fact, I saw a lime hanging on the lime tree, which is now big enough to be producing lime just the other day. But someone clearly had to have the skills to do that. But it didn't feel like it was connected, like I didn't really get an invitation to this. So I guess there's a way to do it and then there's a better way to do it around being more involving. There is. And there's lots of examples of um, that, that type of thing called verge gardening or gardening on the verge. Uh, and there's there was a project in Melbourne called the Lemon Tree Project, which was doing exactly that. And it was using you know, citrus trees as a social object to bring mm. the community together around gardening and, and health and nutrition and so on and other and, and about using space in smarter ways and so on. Um, and so, uh, you know, and that's where I guess local government can really play an important role as a sharing city to understand how can they uh, unlock those underutilized assets, vacant land, vacant space, empty shop fronts and so on, and work with the community to activate those spaces, to be involved in placemaking, to um, be involved in community garden projects, whatever it might be. And so we're seeing cities around the world starting to actually see their own assets and infrastructure as uh, a platform for sharing. And when we come back with Darren Sharp, I'll be asking him what happens when sharing all goes wrong. You're listening to The Next Billion Seconds. And we're back talking to Sharing Cities expert Darren Sharp. Darren, one of the things that I know people talk about when we talk about sharing is this thing that they call the tragedy of the commons. And this comes from when back in England, everyone could take their cows out and they could pasture them on the green in the middle of the town. And that's fine when there's only a few cows. When there's a lot of cows, all the grass is gone and then no one has grass for their cows. So that's the tragedy of the commons. So when you have something you can share, you still have to be a little careful you have to manage that sharing or else it all goes wrong. And I'm thinking, yes, you can have your tool library, but what happens if someone goes and abuses the drill or abuses the lawnmower? How do we actually manage our sharing so that we can share responsibly like we were taught when we were kids and not just sort of share like badly? Yeah, that's a really good question. And I think it comes down to rules. We need to establish, you know, a framework and rules for how we can actually manage what are called common pool resources. So that idea of the commons uh, is really important in this day and age when we're talking about cities. And so we're starting to actually look at the city itself as a commons. And if I think about my city in Melbourne, what really makes it um, you know, so compelling and so creative and great to be a part of are all the common spaces that we have in Melbourne. So you think about the laneways, you think mm. about all the mm. street art culture and the cafes and the music scene and all those things. Imagine if it was um, a pay per use model where all that was privatized mm -hmm. and you had to pay to access the laneway, you had to pay to access the footpath, you had to pay to access all these spaces. It'd be a completely different vibe and a completely different cultural sort of experience that you'd well, have. Well, it'd be in a theme city. park. It wouldn't be at that point a public space. Exactly. And when it, and because it's not just a public space, but a common space where we can come together as a community. If you think about the street art community, let's say in the laneways, um, we, 
that that functions um, as a as an urban commons. If mm. we think about that tragedy of the commons, so if someone comes in and destroys that environment, or paints over a Banksy, right? right, which has happened in Melbourne before. The, the very famous graffiti artist has had their work graffitied. Exactly. So if we ha- if we think about the commons, it's really a social act of relating to each other. Right. So it's about commoning as much as it is about the commons itself. So again, it comes back to setting ground rules for how you behave in that community environment and then having a way to enforce those rules. So if people are exploiting that commons and and diminishing it and preventing others from being able to access it and enjoy it, then there is punishment for those who um, perform those negative behaviours and so on. So it's just the same as when you're in kindy and you're not sharing your toys? Well, you're going to get a timeout. Exactly, exactly. And that's what cities are grappling with at the moment. How do they manage yeah. their you know, assets and infrastructure and their cityscape as a commons in, in one sense or another? And, and there are examples like Bologna, which are doing this really well. So they're probably at the cutting edge of all this. They've um, got a really uh, uh, innovative uh, mayor and city government and they've introduced actual legislation. This is where rules come in Mm -hmm. for how to manage the urban commons. And they actually have um, really widened the definition of um, you know, city making and turn the tables and given citizens the power. So in other words, part of being a citizen in a city is not just living there but knowing the rules of sharing, but also being aware of what you can share. So it's that two-edged sword. Exactly. And changing the rules when they're not working and not necessarily to just, you know, benefit some of the disruptive players because, you know, that I think that, that kind of argument about how city governments have been painted with a pretty, um, you know, bad brush about getting in the way of disruptive innovation when we think of... In other words, Airbnb perhaps driving rents up and things like that. Right. right? So city governments have a responsibility to all city stakeholders, to homeowners, to citizens, Mm -hmm. to students, to the homeless, to, you know, it depends how broad you want to look at this, to be able to ensure that there's a public and community benefit in how these services are rolled out given that they do access public space, they do access common land, they do access the urban commons. So we have to make sure that there's a balancing of those interests and needs. It almost then starts to sound like a sharing city is a democratic city. That I mean, you can't really have one without the other. Exactly. So it's really about the, this new model of collaborative and participatory governance, which we're seeing in cities like Bologna, where the government will come and, and form a collaboration pact, like an actual contract with citizens and community groups who want to start like a... Um, uh, an ethical shop front in mm-hmm. the city. They want to help. There's a group that are working with refugees and they've taken an empty shop and they've turned it into a boutique to help asylum seekers and mm-hmm. so on. There's another project that came out of Bologna called Social Streets, which is um, a community-led project to, um, again, unlock that stuff, space and skills. And it's not doing it to monetize anything to make revenue, but it's doing it to really strengthen that community. But that, to make the quality of life better. And that that, that is the essence of a sharing city is that when you do it well, then people who live there are living better lives, not because they're wealthier, but because they're in an eternal sense that they're richer. Exactly. If we think about what makes really great cities great, it's the um, amenity that we have. It's the culture. Mm. It's the experiences when you're walking down the city and you can access the music, the nightlife, the street art, the food, the wine culture, whatever it might be. And so it takes a range of different players to be able to have access to what those ingredients that make a city you know, exciting and innovative and to be able to play in that space fairly. All right. Let's, let's, let's unroll this. Let's take this out. Okay. So 
you know, you've just crash landed in Melbourne or in Sydney and you want to turn them into sharing cities. What's your first step? Do you start with the people? Do you start with the government? Do you start just by yourself or? Sure. So what we've done at Shareable, so Shareable is a news and action hub for the sharing economy, which has been around for nearly 10 years now. And I'm the Australian editor of Shareable. So it's a website that also functions as a sort of clearinghouse? It does. And it also functions as a, a community organizing hub as well. And so we started the Sharing Cities Network back in 2013, and to date over 50 cities have joined that network. Uh, and so I'm the Melbourne coordinator of the Sharing Cities Network. And one of the first steps we take is to really try and find the others, as it were, in terms mm-hmm. of the community groups, the sharing startups, local government, people working in urban agriculture, in car sharing, in local government who are re- trying to regulate this space mm-hmm. and provide policy settings and so on. And then to actually, like I said earlier, get, get involved in asset mapping, running events like map jams and so on. And that's literally about putting the sharing economy on the map and making the invisible visible and trying to connect the dots in the local community. All right, so you, ha- you have the map jam, you have this map, and this map is the stone soup where everyone's coming and put their own little things in it. So you have this nice big rich map. And now I've just moved to Melbourne. I've just moved to Sydney. How do I find out about that map? Sure. So if you go to shareable.net and you have a look at uh, sharing cities, you can see there's 50 nodes there. You can click on the link to Melbourne. We're in the process of setting one up in Sydney as well. Mm -hmm. And you can see the sharing map of of Melbourne there and you can get involved. You can add to that map. You can run your own events and actually, you know, um, focus on specific sectors or specific suburbs and so on. And so we provide toolkits, which are how-to guides and instruction manuals. We use open source software like OpenStreetMap so that communities can run their own map jam events. Does does Melbourne City also have this on their website? I mean, is, the, is it integrated at that level or is this something that's sort of happening alongside of it? The city of Yarra had it on their website. Mm-hmm. Um, Melbourne has other things on their website. They've got a really great open data portal and they do have access to all the different uh, car sharing pods that are in the city, I believe, and the bike sharing program as well. So that's using um, open data to be able to create uh, an open data means these are files that anyone can grab they can download they can change and they can share exactly and if you're a developer for example you could make like an app out of it so you could just you know create something that would show you all the car sharing pods in the city wherever you might be uh, or where all the bike share um, stations are and so on so you could create an app for that potentially all right do we know now when someone lives in a city that has been has started to become a sharing city are the folks who live there, are they happier? Are they wiser? Are they more able? I mean, how do we sort of know that you're doing it right? Sure. I think um, it, it really comes down to, if we say we look at um, Seoul, where the uh, government there out of the mayor's office were the, the first in the world to launch a sharing city program mm-hmm. uh, since 2012. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they have a range of different um, ways to do that in terms of opening up access to public buildings, so they've got over 800 public buildings available. They support their local sharing startup ecosystem. So mm-hmm. rather than just saying, let's you know, open the floodgates to Uber and Airbnb, they're actually trying to build a domestic sharing economy um, startup scene and mm-hmm. put money and resources and training and capacity building into that. So what Saul is saying is we actually have those resources and we can use these resources to make great 
things happen that are local, that that we have the smart people who can take what we have and sh- we can share it with them to make things happen here rather than saying that it's going to go to an Uber or to an Airbnb and basically all the money and the talent goes somewhere else. Exactly. And the challenge is as the sharing economy and the platform economy continues its rise and continues to sort of disrupt uh, established players mm. and established industries, legacy systems and industries, um, it's really bumping up against those regulations. But it's also um, providing a, a threat in the sense that if we look at how Amazon has decimated the the book industry and so on, and now it's moving into to retail and so on, and the network effects that we see. So in- network effects means the more people who are, are, are joined to Amazon, the more tends to flow to Amazon, things like that. Right. And so now those network effects and, and that those platform dynamics, the way platform businesses run is moving into what we would normally now consider to be um, utility kind of businesses, right. whether it's like uh, a taxi service or, you know, accommodation provider or whatever it might be. And this is why city governments are feeling so threatened by these big platform players because now these utility services are being privatised in a sense. And so city governments are feeling they don't have any control over how um, they're being used and how public space and, and, and public infrastructure is being used. So, so are on. we are we going to see more cities like Seoul that say, okay, you know, we accept that there's going to be platforms here for car sharing or for ride sharing or for, you know, renting a room, but that we want to do it ourselves. Will we see a Melbourne equivalent of an Uber or a Sydney equivalent of an Airbnb that's designed to be able to service the needs of the local community and to keep the money in the local community? Well, what's really interesting is we can look at what's happening in places like Denver in Colorado, where there's something called Green Taxi Co-op. And that's now got about 800 taxi drivers uh, come together and form their own what's called a platform cooperative. Mm -hmm. And essentially it's owned and governed by the drivers themselves. And so they've got their own ride hailing service, Mm -hmm. which keeps the money and the jobs and the wealth in that local community. There's another uh, ride sharing co-op called Modo, I think in Canada. And so we're starting to see more and more of these things emerge. There was a group uh, in Austin called Ride Austin that came when the government there forced Uber and Lyft to undertake similar background checks, safety checks, to criminal background checks for drivers and so on. And so Ride Austin emerged when Uber and Lyft vacated that market mm-hmm. to create more of a, a cooperative and community-run taxi service and so on. So it is possible then that what we're seeing is that the the big things, the, the big names that we're hearing about, the Ubers, the Airbnbs, that these are really just sort of the leading edge of what's going to become part of what a normal urban experience is like in the next billion seconds. And so now, as we're getting close to the end here, let's let's bring this forward. So 30 years from now, these ideas about cities as platforms, that that's going to be everywhere, that every city will be its own platform. Now, I travel a lot. Will I have to figure out how to plug into every city if I'm in Hong Kong one week or if I'm in Auckland or if I'm in Los Angeles? Uh, how? Because you figure in that world, we're going to be at least as mobile as we are today. We're going to be moving around as much. If every city has their own platform and all these platforms are very specific, how will I be able to land somewhere and integrate into that? I mean, at least now I have an Uber app and I can open that Uber app in Los Angeles and I can open it in Perth and it's going to do the same thing. This is what gets really interesting because if we look at um, analogy back to the World Wide Web and we mm. can see that if Tim Berners-Lee had sort of kept that closed and as proprietary software – 
you know, then it wouldn't have gone anywhere. Like right. France had Minitel for, for ages and, you know, who's ever heard of it, right? It didn't break out of that market. So when it, when something is running on open source software and others can innovate on top of that, that software stack and be able to create and innovate, look where we are today in terms of all the, you know, the, the thousands of businesses that have started on top of open source software. The same thing is happening to the, to the city environment where uh, if we look at the city as a platform, we can make choices as a community around do we have, you know, closed platforms or open platforms. Mm-hmm. And I really like that saying that um, Mike Andreessen, the founder of Netscape, who's a famous venture capitalist, he talks about software is eating the world. Right. So, so is we, software eating cities then? It is. Software is definitely eating cities. If we think about the Internet of Things and the big... So the Internet of Things being all the little devices that are in a city being connected and talking to one another. Exactly. And so if we think about the big technology companies like Google and Amazon and Facebook and Microsoft moving into that Internet of Things environment, they are going to want to control every switch, you know, every every kind of a- aspect of infrastructure, whatever it might be, to be able to sell their technology solution to governments and others and so on. And the, the question we have to ask there is, you know, who is actually benefiting from that and who gets to have a say in how those decisions are made? Whereas if that platform is kept open and you can innovate as a startup, you can innovate as a small business, as a community member and so on, we have a much more, um, you know, uh, open invitation to innovate together collaboratively. Well, then how, if, if those are the benefits and the, the drawbacks, how do we ensure that these platforms are open and stay open? Because right now there's a lot of closed platforms. They're very big. They're making a lot of money. The new open sharing platforms are still kind of small in, in comparison. How do we put our weight behind those? What choices do we make today to make sure that that's the future we end up with tomorrow? Sure. So city governments can make choices in terms of their procurement strategies, in terms of the business that they, you know, um, procure from the services they procure from service providers and so on. So they can say, we want it to use service providers who are providing open source software solutions and so on. We want to have access to open design so that our community can benefit from that. We want to open have- design, meaning when you design something, all of the designs are put out there so people can take it, adapt it, change it, improve it, share it along. Exactly, exactly. Um, and there's lots of examples of that. If we think of something like WikiHaus, which is sort of like a 3D printed house system where it's all open design, you can download the, the, the software and then you can use laser cutting and 3D printing to build your own home essentially, but you're not paying for that design, mm-hmm. you're paying for the material. So it cuts down the cost of uh, building a house, for example. But and it also means that if I have a great addition to make to WikiHouse, I can add that in and then someone else can then download exactly. that. Exactly. And, and that. in Sydney, we've got AbilityMate, which is using open design to develop um, prosthetic devices, ass- assistive devices for people with a disability mm-hmm. so that you can cut down the, the cost of getting access to like a, a dongle that will attach to a wheelchair or whatever it might be. And it, they can 3D print that at a fraction of the cost. So then is this really going to be like the web where the web took a little while to take off? People were very excited about it, but it took a little while. And we're still really, I think, working out what the web is good for and how it helps us. Is that what we're going to see with the sharing cities? Is that you know, we have those big platforms that are sort of showing us what can happen, but we're going to take the idea behind those sharing platforms and now apply that to many different aspects of our life in cities. Exactly. So if we think about, you know, we've seen home sharing and we've seen ride hailing services really dominate. But if we think about the future of energy and and a whole Mm. range of other areas, so I think it's really important 
that cities work collaboratively with their communities to develop solutions like what's happening in Barcelona is a good example where they've come together with community stakeholders to craft their sharing economy policies and regulations which have been adopted by the city council, right? And so that way you are opening it up to a much broader section of, of society and saying, hey, startups, hey, universities, hey, big corporates, how do we come together and develop uh, solutions that are sensitive to our local communities and so on? Darren, tell us now, if someone is listening, what can they do? Sure. So they can go to shareable.net. We've got hundreds of how-to guides and you can learn about how to start a community garden in your neighborhood. You can learn about how to start a a repair cafe, which is a a way to bring the community together to, you might have a broken appliance. You can learn from a neighbor how to fix an appliance and so on and and make friends in the process. You can um, get involved in clothing swaps in a whole bunch of different skill shares. You can start talking to your local council about how they support sharing. And if uh, you need to, you can start running map jams yourself and sharing festivals. And again, there's a whole bunch of resources that we have available on shareable.net, including a book which is coming out in August on sharing cities. So the tools are there, the software is there. Uh, it's about being a champion of sharing in your own local community to make um, sharing cities a reality. And if you do that, if you become the champion, what's going to happen, of course, is you're going to end up with all these great friendships with all of these people in the community. So you're going to have a better life all around. Exactly. Darren, thank you for being on The Next Billion Seconds. My pleasure. Sort of close up the story I was talking about with car sharing in my neighborhood. I have a parking spot, but I don't own a car, so the parking spot is almost always empty. And there was a period of time when I actually thought that I could rent it out because, you know, there's plenty of cars in the neighborhood. Someone might want to use it there. And there was a website, and I put the information about the car in there, and I actually got a couple of offers to rent my car spot, and I always turned them down. And after a while, the website just said, do you want to take your spot off because you're, you're not renting it? And it's like, yeah, I, I might as well. And, and I wondered if I felt guilty about that because space in the city is at a premium. I could share that space. I could make a little money off of it. I don't quite know if I was ready to do that, if I was ready to turn that parking spot into income. And it seems almost silly because you think of people doing it with Airbnb, people doing it with Uber. But there was a, a line that somehow I didn't want to cross. And I have a feeling that a lot of people are feeling the same way around this, that this is something that's kind of new. It's a little weird. It's a little unfamiliar. Maybe, and I don't mind letting people park in the spot when they ask. That's fine. You don't have to pay me for that. But maybe it's turning it into an economic transaction. I'm not quite comfortable with that. And Darren Shop really showed how there's a bit of a conflict going on between the big companies and the cities themselves and the people who live in the cities. We haven't really sorted any of this out. We're still finding our way. And what we're going to learn over the next billion seconds is how we can thread all of these different motivations. People of profit motivations, people of community motivations, people just want to make the city a great place to live and share. All of this we're going to have to sort out for ourselves. Now, we'd like to hear from you. Drop by our Facebook page, send us a message on Twitter, visit our website at nextbillionseconds.com. Tell us what you want to know about the sharing future. We'll do our best to bring it to you on another episode. In the next episode of The Next Billion Seconds, we'll be talking to researcher and anthropologist Dr. Genevieve Bell about self-milking cows and what they tell us about ourselves. That'll be the next time on The Next Billion Seconds. The Next Billion Seconds is recorded for Podcast One. Recording and production assistance is provided by Alex Mitchell. Audio production by Nick Slater. Music by Kirk Godfrey. For more episodes, head to podcastone.com.au or the Podcast One app. 
This is Mark Pesci thanking you for listening. Mm-hmm.